Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back, everyone, to Reconsider, part of the Abora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we're going to be digging up uh, some old dirt, beating a very long dead horse, although not as dead as it seems. We're going to be talking about the Afghan war, which, of course, probably due to, you know, just general exhaustion in the American electorate doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's still a you know major policy issue for the current administration. It was for the previous administration, and it's something that the U.S. has been banging its head on for a long time. Xander's been doing a bunch of research on this, uh, and we're going to be giving an update about a you know somewhat major event that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. And we're talking a little bit about how the United States has morphed its priorities in Iraq over the past, gosh, 18 years. Afghanistan. Ah, oh. oh, geez, right, Afghanistan. I swear this was not intentional, but a great example of how well the United States electorate gets distracted into thinking about other big flashy things when we still got important priorities going on. So Afghanistan. Xander, take us away. Indeed. Just real quick before we dig into it, standard stuff. If you haven't followed us on the social medias yet, at Reconsider Pod, we tweet stuff like, you know, newsy stuff and occasional commentary. So <laughs> follow us there. Patreon.com, if you like what we do, we put a lot of time into these episodes. We'd appreciate a book a show that helps us do things like go to the Intelligent Speech Conference and give talks on polarization and. U.S. administration's foreign policy towards different countries. So stuff like that is helpful. Yeah, we don't get paid for those talks. We got to buy those flights. So to all of our patrons so far, thank you so much. You paid for our flights and our hotels, even lunch. So we got to take a free trip to New York. It means the world to us. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, So last week, the Taliban met with Afghan government officials. And this was a bigger deal than maybe a lot of folks are familiar with. And in this episode, we're going to talk about why that is. And we're going to give you some of the background to understand why this is a fairly important development in the history of the now 18-year-long war and what it might mean for the war going forward and its potential resolution. So Afghanistan is America's longest war. It's been going on since 2001. U.S. invaded Afghanistan immediately following the 9-11 attacks 
which were carried out by al-Qaeda. And the, the ostensible goal at the time was to oust the Taliban. The way it was set up was the Taliban was the essentially official Afghan government at the time that was providing safe haven to al-Qaeda, which was a, a non-state jihadist group, and it was al-Qaeda that carried out the attacks on 9-11. And the Taliban had come to power in 1996, so they had been in power for about five years, and they, the Taliban had come to power after a four-year civil war, which followed immediately after the Soviet Union's failed invasion of Afghanistan, which took place in 1979, lasted a decade. The Soviet Union finally withdrew, and then there was a lot of fighting because there was a power vacuum left as to who was going to take control of the country afterwards. Yeah, and so after 9-11, the United States went, you know, gave the Taliban an old ring-a-ding and said, hey, give us this bin Laden a-hole. We need to bring him to justice. And the Taliban said, well, we're not, uh, you, you didn't provide sufficient evidence uh, to implicate bin Laden for the role in the 9-11 attacks. So, you know, go eat rocks. And the U.S. said, all right, well, here we come. And uh, Congress actually voted for this as a war, which I believe did not happen in Iraq, if I remember correctly. We did not actually, you know, vote to declare war, but we did vote. I, I don't think we've declared war. I don't think we've declared war since World War II, but I think what happened was Congress, it was, they passed the authorization for military force, ah, yes. which is kind of a weasel way to give power to the executive so that they, they wouldn't be responsible for actually declaring war, right? Right. Yes, you're right about that. So and then the United States invaded and with the help of the Northern Alliance quickly toppled the Taliban, you know, drove them into the south and began mil building military bases throughout the country um, in an attempt to, you know, secure the country, keep the Taliban from coming back and give U.S. and Afghan allied troops the ability to operate with impunity in Afghanistan to be able to go rip out al-Qaeda and find bin Laden. And the idea was that the United States soldiers would be training Afghan soldiers to provide the long-term security in the country and thereby prevent a Taliban insurgency that would, you know, embroil the country in an 18-year civil war and, and potentially try to take back power. And as we all know, it didn't work out quite so well. And a big reason for that is that it turns out that the Afghans are really good at fighting insurgencies. You know, they call it the grave of empires for a reason. And this is probably something that the United States should have seen coming, seeing that the United States supported the Afghan Mujahideen insurgency that rolled back the Soviets when the Soviets invaded in the 1980s. Right. So the U.S. was very good at knocking the Taliban out of power. But when it came to establishing a force that could then control the territory after the U.S. withdrawal, not so great. And, you know, if you think about it, that, that kind of makes sense because if the Taliban was the, the entity that was powerful enough to emerge from the civil war successfully in terms of, you know, winning control of the territory, that probably means that the other side wasn't particularly powerful. And sometimes guns and money uh, is not necessarily enough to create a cogent fighting force. But so Obama comes into office in 2000 and early 2009. And one of the platforms that he won on was ending the war in Iraq, not Afghanistan, in Iraq. And he largely did this. There are still some forces in Iraq, U.S. forces in Iraq today, but when Obama came to office, there was about 150,000 U.S. forces in Iraq in early 2009. 
And by the third quarter of 2012, there was almost none. Today, I, there's about 5,000. It's not clear to me if we actually withdrew close to zero and then sent more in. I'd have to double check on that or if we just kind of like 5,000 has been the maintenance level for a while. But a lot of forces came out of Iraq under Obama's administration. At the same time, though, while Obama was withdrawing forces from Iraq, he was actually sending a lot more to Afghanistan. This is the famous surge. Actually, I don't know how famous it is, but that's what they called it, the surge. Very, very surgy, militarily, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> well, well, it's actually, I think, yeah, I, w- I would assume it's the lesser famous of the surges because, you know, George Bush and General David Petraeus chose uh, to have a surge in Iraq that, you know, of course, was followed by a decrease in um, insurgent activity and civil war activity, which, you know, before the surge had been had been extremely potent and bloody. And so, you know, there's there are there are, I think some schools of thought that say the surge was was successful um, or at least related to the the decrease in activity, uh, you know, in, in insurgent activity and civil war activity. And it included a lot of not just boots on the ground, but actually getting out of the army bases and into the streets more and, and all sorts of stuff. Petraeus's counterinsurgency manual outlines a lot of what was done here, but I probably I, w- I would guess that the Afghan surge is the lesser known of the two. Uh, but it did happen. Indeed, when Obama came and uh, when Obama took office, there were about twenty five thousand U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, and at the peak of the Afghanistan surge, there were about one hundred thirty thousand U.S. soldiers. So quite a substantial increase. Today, there are about 14,000, and Trump has claimed that he wants to bring about 7,000 of those home. I don't know if this is still the case, because this was sort of a news item that was out and circulating in December 2018, about the same time that Trump said he was going to pull out of Syria. He ended up not pulling out of Syria entirely. entirely. Maybe about 50% of our forces in Syria were, were withdrawn. I haven't noticed a substantial decrease in Afghan troop numbers. But anyways, that's about where we are today. Now, the question, of course, is, how do you end a war that you've been in for 18 years? And I mean, if we're being real here, Eric, there, there wasn't really a strategic end goal in mind, right? The idea was eliminate Al-Qaeda and take, take the Taliban from power. And then that was kind of it. There was no long-term plan besides training local people to, to, to get out of the war. And this is kind of like one of the problems that a lot of powerful countries run into where like the first step is relatively easy because there's just such overwhelming force, but then how you actually hold that territory over time requires a lot of times just like permanent occupation, right? It's like what the Romans did. Right. And, and, and that's certainly something that the U S is not willing to do. And yeah, this, this lack of strategic thinking going in involved, you know, there was a clear, there was, or there was a clear outcome that was desired. And that was essentially that like the Taliban would not, exist in a meaningful way to be able to host, you know, non-state actor terrorist, you know, jihadist terrorist groups again. And that so far has failed. The Taliban holds substantial territory. And so, you know, at what point do you say, well, you know, we've we've sort of either one, we've demonstrated sufficient, you know, consequences and retaliatory capacity and willingness in the United States, such that if they do it again, we're going to come back. So they've sort of maybe have learned their lesson and decided maybe we're not going to host something like Al Qaeda anymore because you know it's going to get us in trouble and get a lot of our people killed. Or do you do you attempt to say we really need to clear out 100 percent of Taliban presence 
from Afghanistan for this to be successful. And that 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 level of detail in what does success look like was you know certainly insufficiently clear for the United States to have a you know a a, a clear end game, a clear trigger for saying, all right, we're done, peace. And certainly I think some of the feeling I hear about how some Americans feel about this, and I'm couching my words because I don't have a comprehensive study here, is that there's a sense that the United States kind of made this mess and it would it would feel wrong and bad and immoral if the United States said, okay, we've destabilized this country, you know, took a took took a government out of power, obviously pretty evil, terrible government, but took this government out of power and just left and said, Good luck with your civil war. Bye. Right. Yeah. And the Taliban is still today the most powerful fighting force in Afghanistan, at least in terms of momentum and territory being taken and held. So the the U.S. kind of got to the point where it's like, all right, we need to do something about this. And last year began talks with the Taliban. And this is something that the U.S. had really not done much over the course of the war. It, it had sought to, to crush the Taliban and didn't, didn't really want to talk with them. But uh, peace negotiations began last year. And, you know, since that has happened, the Taliban has continued sort of a countrywide offensive. And today they hold, uh, I think, more than 50 percent of the territory in Afghanistan with a lot of the remaining 50 percent not held by the Afghan government, but actually contested between the Afghan government and the Taliban. And in terms of this strategy to continue an, off- an offensive while negotiations are going on, it's pretty, pretty standard as far as oh, yeah. war politics go. You know, if negotiations are going on, it's it's not usually a time that the winning side is going to stop fighting since the more that they can use their war momentum to demonstrate success, the greater the chances that they'll be able to force the other side to make larger concessions. Um, something very similar happened in the Tet Offensive uh, when a lot of North Vietnamese soldiers attacked along a very broad front and far more North Vietnamese soldiers were killed per American soldier in that offensive. But the idea was they demonstrated that as these peace talks were going on or kind of getting going at least, that the North Vietnamese was still a potent fighting force. It demonstrated to the American people that North Vietnam was not a defeated power and they still had the manpower resources to you know, catch the Americans by surprise and off guard a little bit. Afghanistan today is a little different just because you know a lot of Vietnam, a lot of the Vietnam War was not so much about holding territory as like, inflicting casualties and running. And in Afghanistan, the Taliban is actually holding a lot of this territory. And there are much fewer U.S. forces in Afghanistan today than there were in Vietnam in 1968. But the point is the Taliban has the momentum and they're still pushing for more concessions during these talks. Yes. And over this 18-year war, as Xander said, the United States was, was initially and for a long time not interested in having peace talks with the Taliban because the objective was to you know, destroy them and, and not let them be included in the governance of the country going forward. The United States had become you know, more and more willing to entertain these kinds of talks, as has the Afghan government, you know, just because that vision has clearly failed to come to fruition. But the Taliban also had generally refused for a long time to meet formally with the Afghan government. There are always these, you know, backroom talks going on as you have in almost any war. But but the Taliban ultimately didn't recognize the legitimacy of the Afghan government. And that was a big part of their own sense of legitimacy was that, look, you know, just much like in Vietnam, the United States saw this as democracy versus communism 
where Ho Chi Minh saw this as a largely nationalist movement, right? That Vietnam was going to be united. It was going to be under its own government and not dominated by any imperial power, Russia or the United States. The Taliban's sense of legitimacy comes from the same kind of place. It's a very nationalist movement. It's very Pashtun movement. And they see the current Afghan government, or at least they, in their propaganda, portray the current Afghan government as puppets of an imperialist United States. You know, and and there's all sorts of other stuff mixed up in it. There's a lot of like religious color added to it. There's ethnic color added to it. But for the Taliban to recognize the legitimacy of the Afghan government in Kabul would undermine their own story of their own legitimacy. So they didn't do it for a long time. Um, and hence the insurgency, right? So the other reason that the Taliban hadn't been meeting with the Afghan government was that they, you know, don't feel like they need to. The Taliban has been winning this war after the initial, you know, pretty significant setback in the early 2000s. Um, And in winning this war, they say, look, you know, the longer this goes on, the more progress we make, the better a bargaining position we have. And maybe we eventually just take Kabul and take the whole thing, and and we don't have to negotiate, right? And there may be an outcome for the Taliban that appears, you know, plausible, in which they simply win the war, and you know they then get to you know move on and and you know and not have to let a United States sponsored government have a seat at the table. However, they have finally started to change their tune. They actually had their first official meeting with the Afghan government in Doha, Qatar. So Qatar, uh, while if you really pay attention to the news, you know that it's uh, Qatar is having major relationship problems with its neighbors. But in some ways, it is a bit like the Switzerland of the Middle East. It is a common place to go have peace talks. It's a common place to go have enemies hash things out in this neutral position. And so they had these talks in Doha, and based on the announcements made from both sides, it seems like they've actually made real progress. Over the last several weeks, leaks have hinted that a discussion on a firm timeline for U.S. withdrawal had been discussed, and for the need for the Taliban to, in exchange, not harbor foreign jihadist groups like al-Qaeda on Afghan soil. So minor correction. I don't know if we can call this an official meeting, and this is still kind of the Taliban playing its game. Because although the Afghan government officials went to Doha and Qatar to meet with the Taliban, the Taliban required that these Afghan delegates visit as if visit on a like a private citizen basis rather than official representatives of the Afghan government. So it's you know it's this diplomatic political game where is it official or not? It's hard to tell. But the point is these people were sitting in the room talking to each other, right? And yeah, it seems like based on the leaks that are coming out, both from the U.S. and the Taliban, that some progress is being made. And it actually has seemed over the last couple of months that progress has been being made in terms of some sort of withdrawal timeline, in terms of you know some sort of agreement not to harbor al-Qaeda. We, we do need to mention, for the sake of being comprehensive, that this isn't the first time ever that Taliban and Afghan officials have met. It happened once in August 2015, but it didn't amount to anything. And then it also happened earlier this year, but again, in even sort of a less official context than in in Doha over the last week. In February of 2019, there's a delegation of Afghan officials led by former Afghan President Karzai 
which visited, let's see, I actually forget where they met, but they met with Taliban officials, again, as private citizens rather than official government reps. So it it seems as if these sort of Afghan Taliban meetings are happening more and more, and they are happening with sort of more real government officials, even if they're not meeting these government officials on like an official basis. The point to provide point of background in that context is that there's still reason to be skeptical of the progress being made so far. And, you know, think about it from the Taliban side, right? Obama had his Afghanistan surge. There's 130,000 U.S. forces in Afghanistan in 2012. And now, uh, seven years later, they're gone. They did not defeat the Taliban. The Taliban came right back from being an insurgency to a the most capable military force in Afghanistan, basically as soon as these U.S. forces left. And the U.S. doesn't really have the appetite for being there anymore because if 130,000 forces is what it takes to kind of like push this this Taliban insurgency back into the hills, and that's the troop level that you're going to need all the time to do it, the U.S. is not going to be willing to commit to those sort of troop levels. And in fact, even the 14,000, you know, a lot of people would probably want to see brought home. Although, there are people who came out and said, oh, Trump's an idiot for saying he's going to withdraw these 7,000 forces before the negotiations are made. It, it's another example of him abandoning our allies. And, you know, I think that is probably an example of tribal flippage because Obama, again, won on a platform of leaving the Middle East. So that's kind of a side point. But from the Taliban's perspective, you know, they're in a good position to negotiate with the U.S. because the U.S. is not going to redeploy an additional 115,000 forces now. Uh, seven years after they tried it earlier. So the only thing that can keep happening right now is the Taliban probably keeps taking territory and negotiates for a better deal. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, one of the questions I have is, is there a clear framework from this about what the future, what a future peace could look like? Would it be a like, you know, a power sharing arrangement of some sort or a unity government that just includes, you know, that includes kind of guaranteed seats for both the Taliban and the Northern Alliance types? I'm, I'm saying this because I'm you know thinking about some previous peace deals that have worked uh, or at least kind of worked. A good example is in, you know, in Iraq, there are guarantees constitutional guarantees that various government posts and certain numbers in their parliament are filled by people of certain um, ethno-sectarian backgrounds, which in the United States would be 
absolutely bonkers to consider. Like, could you imagine saying that, you know, Catholics will have, you know, 10% or more of, of Congress, just unthinkable, but it has worked in, in other places that have had these, you know, ethno-sectarian conflicts for a long time. Is there that kind of framework going on in Afghanistan right now, or is it, has it not advanced that far? Well, I mean, that's what the U.S. is pushing for. They want to have some sort of political settlement where the internationally backed Afghan government is officially involved because the Taliban so far has been saying, no, we're not going to do that. You don't like it? Fight us. And right now it kind of seems like Taliban is getting to the point where maybe they have a deal baked out that they like enough where they're willing to bring in the Afghan government a little bit more into, into some sort of deal. In my mind, that probably means that the Taliban is in such a powerful position that the, the official quote-unquote Afghan government is probably going to get screwed. I, I'm pretty cynical in the long run about what these things look like because at the end of the day, like these political settlements are just pieces of paper. And if the Taliban is really only up to this point negotiating with the U.S. and really only sees the U.S. as the main entity that it should be negotiating with, which is this foreign imperial power in their eyes, then they're probably going to be willing to agree to whatever they have to to get the U.S. to leave because they know that once the U.S. is gone, they're not going to redeploy again to Afghanistan if the Taliban just breaks the agreement and takes more power, right? I mean, they came to power in 90, in 90, through 92 to 96 in a civil war. It's hard for me to imagine them just saying, oh, well, you know, we made this deal with the U.S. and they're gone now and they're never coming back, but we're going we're gonna to abide by that deal. You know, maybe that's just my cynicism towards human nature, but I don't see that happening. Right. Yeah. As as we discussed at the beginning of this, it seems that the you know the ultimate aim of the Taliban, what's interesting about the Taliban and how probably the international community feels about them now is that after the rise of ISIS and, you know, and, and sort of the the really shocking stuff that they did and, the, you know, and ISIS's trans Muslim caliphate ambitions and stuff like that, the Taliban looks tame by comparison. You know, at the end of the day. As far as we can tell, the aims, the ultimate aims of the Taliban are to govern the state of Afghanistan as a, you know, as as kind of an Islamic theocracy of sorts. And that's what they want to do. And so, you know, to some extent, you know, when we think about what are the likely outcomes if the Taliban, you know, if the United States withdraws completely post peace deal, we can think about their incentives and say, one, are they going to hold to, you know, a power sharing deal if they you know, if they feel that they can win and the answer is mm, probably not unless they get a pretty sweet deal and uh, in particular a government that, you know, fits their ideology. But two, would they hold to like not hosting, you know, foreign international terror jihadist groups? You know, that seems less in their interest as far as their ultimate aims of governing, Af- you know, governing their territory as a, you know, as, as an Islamic state or as Islamist state, excuse me. Islamic State has has, you know, is a formal term, you know, so it could be, you know, to some extent, you know, the United States looking for looking for a peace deal from, you know, between the Afghan, the internationally recognized Afghan government and the Taliban. I wonder to what extent this is a face saving operation rather than, you know, rather than like a meaningful outcome to the United States, because. Again, I think I think if we think about the United States strategy, the reason it originally went in was to one stop Al Qaeda from being able to operate the way that it did, and two presumably impose some deterrence 
you know, a sense of deterrence in on the top, you know, uh, in Afghanistan and elsewhere in the Middle East. And, and that deterrence says, if you, you know, if you host these, these kinds of, you know, internationalist jihadist terror groups, there are going to be consequences, right? That is, that is our line. That is unacceptable to us. We will use military might for that. And I can, I can see, you know, I'm speculating wildly here, but I can see the Taliban saying, mm, you know, like, I, I don't really see a reason why we need Al Qaeda. Like, they just get us into trouble. Yeah, I, I can imagine that too. And I think the distinction you made between, I, I've heard it described as nationalist versus transnationalist jihadist groups, I think is a, mm. is a helpful one because transnationalist groups like Al Qaeda, like Islamic State, seek to overthrow existing government structures and incorporate them into this new transnational across borders entity. Whereas these nationalist jihadist groups like the Taliban, which seeks to implement Sharia law, still wants Afghanistan to exist in terms of like the current borders and have an Afghanistan with which to conduct foreign policy. It doesn't seek to change that. It just wants to be in control of that Afghanistan. And really in terms of U.S. security interests, these nationalist groups are a lot less threatening than these transnationalist groups because they don't seek to overthrow the existing order in a region, which threatens everything from becoming too powerful to creating power vacuums that need to be dealt with and all that stuff. So I I do think if the Taliban can say, okay, no to Al Qaeda, then the U S probably stays off their case. Yeah. Well, and it's also the case that one of, one of the reasons the United States is likely to, you know, stay off Taliban, you know, the Taliban's case, if they keep their heads down is that, the Taliban are actually in an active military conflict with the United States major Islamist boogeyman, the Islamic State, right? So there is a small Islamic State presence in the southeast of Afghanistan and far from the Taliban saying, hey, fellow, you know, Islamist terrorists, let's link up. Their vision for, you know, they are competitors and the Taliban are trying to drive the Islamic State out of Afghanistan. Potentially, again, for for nationalist reasons, the Taliban is not interested in creating a global caliphate and being part of it, but also just for they don't want to, you know, they don't want to share power. They don't like they want the Taliban to be in charge, not the Islamic State to be in charge. But it's, you know, so it's probably not out of the goodness of their heart that like, oh, yeah, ISIS bad. But but it's certainly the case that it's that that conflict is a good sign that these, you know, that that the Taliban is not going to support transnational jihadist movements. So looking back at the war in Afghanistan, America's longest war in a way, you know, depending on whether depending on how early we count U.S. involvement in Vietnam when we were helping the French try to hold on to it in 1954. But. Besides that, our longest war ever, still involved, still clunking away, mostly losing, right, on our, on our secondary objective of eliminating the Taliban. Likely to win in the first objective by, at this point, doing nothing. You know, we have some tough decisions to make about where does U.S. interest lie and to what extent are we willing to deploy, you know, blood and treasure to try to meet those interests, and to what extent is the United States deploying blood and treasure beyond its interests due to scope creep and all sorts of other things that happen when you know great powers get involved in other places. I think the, the really interesting thing about this as a reconsider moment is that policy in Afghanistan has been 
surprisingly consistent since the beginning, right? We've had a, we, you know, we started off with, with George Bush invading, which in a, which was wildly popular at the time and supported by pretty much all of Congress, I think, except literally one congressperson who voted against it just out of principle and said that they did so through Obama, who quietly brought about a surge to try to defeat the Taliban and then drew down and, and more and more tried to get, uh, you know, after, after that failed, drew down troops and more and more tried to limit U.S. involvement in Afghanistan because, you know, it wasn't achieving its secondary objective. And now we have a third president, Donald Trump, who is looking to further withdraw U.S. forces and, you know, find a kind of graceful exit because, you know, the United States military presence doesn't seem to be maintaining any core objectives. I think the thing we need to think about is, do we feel like, you know, when we think about Afghanistan, which is rare these days, right? Most Americans have, have you know, it's, it's, there was a book called America's Forgotten War, and it's been pretty forgotten for a pretty darn long time. But it's a great case in point of two things. One, how do we think about military action in terms of American interests and in terms of, you know, a greater strategy, you know, in, in terms of actual strategy as opposed to sort of moralizing? But then two, is this, you know, uh, this is a good case in thinking about whether the foreign policies of these past three presidents who, you know, in many ways are so polarizing and so frustrating to different parts of the electorate, have their foreign policies been radically different or have they been surprisingly similar? This is a bit of a leading question because I think you know where I, where I think the answer is. I think they've been fairly similar. Not to say that any of them are right or wrong, uh, any, you know, any of the policies are right or wrong or bad or good, but have they indeed been similar? The answer is probably yes. And so we can look at Afghanistan and take all these moments, these events, these policies, and if we strip away the name, we strip away what, what color jersey that the president is wearing at the time, can we look at that and see what's the coherent underlying strategy and are these, are these folks acting similarly to each other? I think we could do it with other cases as well, with, you know, with the rest of the Middle East, with our relationship with Iran and Syria, with our relationship with Russia, with China. What has been the, the thread of where have we been putting on pressure and where have we been trying to make friends? Where have we gotten involved and where have we decided to stay out of it? You know, how coherent is this central narrative? It's, you know, I, I think... Xander and I would say it's, you know, our global strategy is not as coherent as it could be. But for each of these nations, have there been, you know, have we seen a bunch of like actual real flip flopping back and forth on policy um, once we get past the rhetoric, once we get past the person? You know, I think and I, I think if we can see some of the similarity between these three faces, these three administrations, once that starts to all click, once that pattern emerges, it gives us the ability to really start to challenge whether the branding, you know, the different branding, the different rhetoric, the, the different kind of just like attack, you know, politically convenient or media convenient attacks on any one of these three folks about a particular the decision they made in their foreign policy, whether those are actually signs of meaningful difference or whether they are, you know, whether they are simply politically or media convenient in order to get our blood up. So with that, I guess we'll call it call it a show. 
and remind y'all to not let the pundits do the thinking for you, but to pause and instead reconsider. Xander, signing off. We'll see you next time. This is Eric signing off. Adios, everyone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.